Thanks very much, Bob, uh, for the introduction. And um, yeah, it's wonderful to be here to this very esteemed, long, very long-running philosophy seminar series and uh, to actually be able to deliver the talk um, with you in the room here. Can everyone hear me at the back? Yeah, good. Um, yeah, so um, as was just mentioned, this uh, paper is related to the book project. So this is actually based on the concluding chapter of the book. It's a spin-off from the concluding chapter of the book, um, which is mostly about <coughs> explanation in neuroscience and the role of abstraction and idealization in neuroscientific models. Um, and then the question that's picked up at the end is once we acknowledge how much scientists are reliant on representations of um, neural systems, including the perceptual system, like the visual system, once we realize how much they're reliant on models which, if you like, deliberately distort what is thought to be the re reality of those systems, then does that create troubles for philosophers who are doing uh, projects in, say, naturalistic philosophy of mind and perception and want to be able to read off lessons from the science um, about how we should think about perception and um, especially all of those old philosophical questions relating to mind-world relationships, a whole bunch of instances of those projects. So that's the background uh, to the project. Specifically um, today, I'm going to be um, answering these two apparently unrelated questions. So why is dualism so tenacious? Um, Often people talk about like, badly repressed Cartesianism. Descartes is this figure that's always held up as the bad guy in the history of philosophy, leading everyone down this long, long deluded path. We need to stop being Cartesians, and yet people don't seem to figure out how to stop being Cartesians. I'm going to be asking, is that really what's going on here? Um, and there's this other question about what's, why is there this stalemate um, between Tyler Burge and John McDowell over methodology in philosophy of perception. So this is something that um, Bill Fish has written about. Um, he's compared to this um, debate, this stalemate, there's a clash of Kuhnian paradigms where these two philosophers have such different starting points, such different um, conceptual frameworks, if you like, that they're just not able to um, communicate with each other enough to debate productively. Um, so I'll be giving a different diagnosis of the stalemate. Connection, as I've said here, is that we need to think more about the role of idealizations in the philosophy of mind and perception. And that will be related to the first question. Um, so this is the outline. I'm going to be saying what I mean by Cartesian idealizations um, with a focus on particular kind of idealization that came in in um, 20th century cognitive science. Um, and then we've got these, um, these very famous issues that arise um, from Descartes' philosophy, so dualism and skepticism. I'll be reading McDowell's disjunctivism as a um, response to the Cartesian skeptical predicament. I think that's pretty much on the surface of what he says about um, disjunctivism, though it's not on the surface of Burge's attack on disjunctivism. Um, and I'll be arguing ultimately that these, one of the, some of these Cartesian idealizations play a role in Burge's, um, the, in the perceptual science that Burge is using, and hence 
This is the source of the antagonism between these two philosophers. Uh, so the disclaimer is that this talk is not about the historical figure Descartes. Um, my argument is actually going to be not that Cartesianism, what I'm calling Cartesianism, is really like a historical lineage that has been passed down in any direct way, but rather that Descartes is a convenient representative of a intellectual culture, a scientific way of thinking about the world, which maybe in its general um, general contours sort of has remained unchanged if we're thinking about ways of thinking about the world, which stemmed originally from the physical sciences and then had a, a lot to do in um, development of work in um, neuroscience and cognitive science. So, so the idea of the persistence of Cartesianism is really about this being a way of thinking about the mind-world relationship, which has been, if you like, reinvented multiple times because it offers some value to um, scientific thought, which we'll say more about in the, uh, later on. Um, so, yeah, we can quibble about the details of how much of these as we would want to pin on Descartes himself. I'm certainly not committed to the idea that he is like the initial inventor or most important um, advocate of these idealizations, but I still think he's a convenient figurehead. Um, so the starting point for my line of thought here actually began with John Hoagland's paper called um, Mind Embodied and Embedded. So the thesis of this paper is that there is a link between mind-body dualism and the conception of mind as this isolatable subsystem which interacts with the body and then the environment through these limited narrow bandwidth channels. Um, so the opposing view to the traditional dualistic one, which is mind embodied and, and embedded, what he advocates for, is to think of the connection between um, brain and mind, brain and body, body and environment, so will be these high, high bandwidth connections, he calls them. Um, and this allows us to theorize, he argues, to quote, the intimacy of the mind's embodiment and embeddedness in the world. So these supposedly opposite poles of the physical and the mental um, turn out to be integral to one another, to co-mingle. So that's a way of getting beyond dualism. So what this idea of there being um, that you should think about dualism as, in this kind of engineer's language of interfaces and components. It's actually inspired by Herbert Simon, very influential cognitive scientist, one of the figureheads um, still today in computational theories of mind and artificial intelligence. So Simon's idea um, basically gives Hoagland his notion of what we need to think of as a component in this context. Simon's idea is that, sure, the nature especially biology, cognitive sciences, they're studying complex systems. But Simon is optimistic that these complex systems are intelligible um, because they are, if you like, modular systems. They decompose, um, approximately speaking, into fairly isolated um, component parts, or I should say isolatable. They're integrated with, e with each other 
like in the organism and in, in the thing in nature that you're studying. But you should think of them as modulizable through scientific investigation. Um, so specifically with a near decomposable complex system, what we mean by component is a subsystem where the interactions within that component are orders of magnitude more intense than the interactions between the components. Um, so the trick here is that you can study those components by themselves, piece by piece, and then ultimately look at how those narrow bandwidth, sort of um, low level, I mean, sort of not very intense kinds of interactions actually work together in the whole system. So this is one way to uh, depict Simon's idea of a near decomposable system. He thinks of them as hierarchical, so they would could have this pyramid kind of structure where there's a bunch of basic fun functions, different components doing different basic functions. Um, these conglomerate into sub-functions, and you can think of the system, say an organism um, as a whole, as being having some big top-level functions. But breaks down into these different um, parts. Um, so this idea of a hierarchical system might be familiar to you from, say, Cummins' work on functional analysis, which, is, again, is very influential in cognitive science. Another way to depict this kind of architecture as like a set of nested black boxes. So if you think of the overall complex system is very, very hard to figure out what's going on. It's just a black box. You can give it inputs and there's outputs, but how do you figure out what's going on inside? Well, if you can start cutting the system up into its different components, you'll see, well, there's black boxes inside the system um, interacting with one another in these fairly um, uncomplex ways, and then more inside there. So you've got these different levels of functionality. Um, so that idea is coming out of cognitive science. Point I want to bring up here is that it's very much a standard methodology within physics that you look at isolated systems. Isolated systems are the target of investigation. As much as you can, you always approximate to isolated systems. So, so something that Putnam mentions, I just quote this here because it gives you a nice articulation of it. He writes, the application of physics depends on the fact that we can produce in the laboratory or find in the world open systems which approximate to the idealized system sufficiently well to yield very accurate predictions. So the point is that in nature, as a matter of fact, all systems are open systems. The ideal of pure isolation is only ever an idealization. But what you can do in the laboratory is shield systems so that their interactions with the rest of the world sort of approximate to nothing and study those that small system, that isolated system, with a far higher degree of precision than you could do otherwise. If everything was just left messy and open and interacting in all, all kinds of different ways that you couldn't possibly keep track of. Um, and Cartwright mentions this in the context of shielding in experimental physics. And I'll read this out for the benefit of the podcasters. 
So we look at the little bits of nature, and we look under a very limited range of circumstances. This is especially true of the exact sciences. We can get very precise outcomes, but to do so, we need very tight control over our inputs. We tend to think that shielding does not matter to the laws we use. The same laws apply both inside and outside the shields. The difference is that inside the shields, we know how to calculate what the laws will produce, but outside, it's too complicated. So again, the idea is that the primary epistemic um, target of physics is the shielded system. You discover laws of nature in operation within the shielded system, and then the science is effective as applied science to the extent that unshielded systems outside the laboratory or in other contexts approximate well enough to the behavior that you have in the shielded system. So Herbert Simon and others sort of are bringing into cognitive science a methodology which is central to physics, this idea of like looking at things in isolation, and I think central to physics since the birth of modern physics, i.e. since Descartes' time. Um, so it's a way of basically decomplexifying nature. So the epigraph to the paper is this quotation from Descartes' Principles of Philosophy, where he talks about positing isolated systems. So our calculations would be easy if there were only two bodies colliding and these were perfectly hard and so isolated from all other bodies that no surrounding bodies impeded or augmented their motions. In this case, they would obey the rules that follow. So I don't, we don't need to dwell on what exactly is going on. In Cartesian physics, you're probably all much more familiar with Newtonian physics and we have this notion of like um, perfectly elastic collisions between two bodies that interact only with themselves and nothing else in the whole universe. And the equations work out perfectly um, with those ideal systems. But idealizations such as perfect elasticity appear in laws like the ideal gas law, which you would use to make predictions about real life systems um, as long as the approximation holds well enough, um, which it doesn't always, but in plenty of cases it will well enough for those equations to be useful. Um, the second strand of Cartesian idealization I talk about in the paper is this idea of living bodies being mechanisms. So this is something that historically Descartes is very much associated with um, in the essay on man, the thought experiment of a statue which is purely a mechanism that has all of the functions of a human being absent the intellectual or soul functions of the soul. But basically the thought that everything in living nature can be um, explained in mechanistic terms. And I'm interested in this in the book project because I'm arguing that the um, computational theory of mind and the proposal that human cognition could in principle be replicated in computers is an instance of that same sort of line of thought in that that we could trace back to the 17th century. I think an interesting facet of the notion of mechanisms um, is that these are 
systems that are assembled out of parts that are in principle separatable from one another. And think of there this analogy in the background here with how people go about making things. Like if you're tinkering around with stuff, trying to make a watch or any kind of assemblage, you have to start with independent pieces and then put them together. So the notion of mechanism is this starts out, the core concept is from artifacts from man-made machines and then systems in nature thought about by analogy from that um, comes with the idea of the components of the system being in principle having this isolated existence, this separate existence. Um, so you might think, yes, but what else could a part B, except something that exists independently from anything else. So I think it's interesting here to think about worldviews that didn't go in for Cartesian idealization. Um, got some ideas here from reading Mary Hesse's really fascinating book, Forces and Fields, um, which begins by sort of comparing um, the sort of worldview of mechanism, which is, as I said, by way of analogy with artifacts, so the universe understood by way of analogy with an artifact, say the clockwork universe. Comparing that mode of analogy, to give you like a worldview, with one that was quite common uh, prior to modern physics, which is to think of the universe by analogy with a whole organism. So you have various world-soul theories, because you have theories of organisms at that time sort of posited um, souls as like unifying principles, um, connecting everything within an organism. So the idea would be, well, the whole world, by analogy with an organism, has some kind of unifying principle. So the point here is that if you're in that conceptual um, headspace, you're not thinking about the parts of that system as having these independent existences. And it's hard to get your head into what those kinds of worldviews would be because they immediately sound quite spooky and weird, right? And un un unacceptable scientifically these days. Um, so, so, yeah, we're very, used, very much more at home with the Cartesian mechanical philosophy in that respect. One of the things that we're very much at home with seems just pretty much impossible to deny it, is that if you think about nature as this causal nexus, goes along with that, that proximal causes screen off distal ones. So it can't be the case that something spatially, temporally separated from me could have more influence on me than things uh, spatially, temporally, proximal, closer to me. Um, and just flagging up here that this proximality principle, which is central to Berger's case against disjunctivism, is just one instance of that general way of thinking about causal systems. Okay. So... How does dualism come in? So tenacious dualism. 
So I'm completely bracketing substance dualism. The notion of like, mind as a separate substance isn't the kind of dualism which I'm bothered about to say that it has a legacy in contemporary cognitive science and perceptual science. Um, but varieties of dualism that people like Hoagland are bothered by are, as he puts it, that cognitions are self-standing and determinant on their own without essential regard to other entities. Um, this is something that also bothers um, John Searle when he says that contemporary materialism accepts the idea that the vocabulary of the mental and the physical, of material and immaterial, of mind and body, is perfectly adequate as it stands. So the worry here that, at least in terms of our categories, we've like divided the world too much into the mental and physical, even if we have a monistic ontology, with, which is materialism. And I just quote Herbert Simon here at the end. Um, he writes in the Sciences of the Artificial that though the computer was embodied in hardware, its soul was a program. So there is a cognitive scientist who's actually quite happy in, a, I guess, a cheeky way to invoke the language of dualism, where he's thinking about the relationship between um, the functionality of computers, so what they're actually doing in their cognitive simulations, um, as opposed to their hardware. Um, so I would, I'm also arguing that the notion of the brain and the fat, which is the modern version of the Cartesian sceptical scenario, also sort of exemplifies the idea that the connection between mind and brain and the rest of the body is only this narrow bandwidth one. Um, so I'm saying, why is this thought experiment even plausible? Well, it's this idea is depicted in this cartoon that, okay, the brain is there and it only interacts with the rest of the world in this diagram through three different wires. Now, I don't think anyone would honestly think three different wires, but, you know, not really lots and lots of intense connections between brain and the rest of the body. Just enough, few enough that someone could isolate all of those different connections and then hook up a computer and recreate everything that the rest of the universe is impacting on the brain just through these few channels, these relatively small number of channels. So that's basically the notion of an isolatable component. Lots and lots of interactivity within the brain, very little interactivity between the brain and rest of the universe relative to within-brain interaction. Okay. So could there be mind-brain sciences without dualism? So the agenda of Hoagland's paper is to say, well, look, if we just follow the scientific observations, you'll see that the connections, the interfaces between brain, rest of the body, and body, rest of the world, are really high bandwidth. Um, so the results in there's accumulating ever more about how deeply you know endocrinology is important to neuroscience immunology the gut microbiome affects the nervous system there's all kinds of 
data and observations, which suggests that the brain is just not that isolated, right? It's not this, it's not as depicted before. It's, it's very, very deeply integrated in surprising ways with the rest of the body. Um, we'll focus on that, but parallel things could be said about, you know, humans, sociality, body and environment, etc., etc. So Hoagland just thinks that, well, people observing this enough just realise that that brain in the back picture is just wrong and move to this more enlightened view, which is mind-embodied and embedded. But I have a worry here that this, these idealisations of isolatable components are much more important to the science than Hoagland is recognising that they're read to have what we think of and we're long accustomed to think of as the normal standards for clarity, rigor and precision in the exact sciences and computational neuroscience very much aspires to be an exact science, then you can't just dispense with this idealization without a cost in that. Um, I have this quotation here from Paul Chizak, who's a... Um, neuroscientist, theoretical neuroscientist who studies um, sensory motor systems, sort of bringing up precisely this worry. He writes, the full sensory motor loop is so complex that understanding it is all a daunting, daunting task. But if splitting the loop into sensory motor and cognitive processes leads to artificial borders and flawed notions of coding, then how else can we subdivide the large question of behavior into smaller and more manageable questions? This is just precisely picking up on this point that to do exact science, you need manageable questions. You need systems that aren't excessively complicated that you just want to model and get the precise uh, description of. So you end up having to make artificial borders, cut things up, even if you know those aren't divisions that necessarily stand in nature. Um, I think he's hinting there that there could be better divisions than the ones that we're used to thinking about between, say, sensory motor and cognition. So he's hoping that there are other cuts that could be made which would be more adequate. But what if there's not? I think it's an open thing that one might worry about. Okay. All right. So this is now going into the... Uh, McDowell-Burge debate. So, brain in the vat brings up sceptical worries. So, narrowband influences with the rest of the world, easy to trick the brain that it's um, walking outside in the sun. So, once the mind is, in principle, cut off from the rest of existence as this isolatable component, it can, in principle, only have certain knowledge of its own contents, that it's experienced a sensation but not that there's anything in the world beyond the confines of the mind that the experience is a perception of. I think this is the worry of this, about this predicament that you see McDowell talk about at the start of Mind and World. He writes about an inchoately felt threat that a way of thinking we find ourselves falling into leaves minds simply out of touch with the rest of reality, not just questionably capable of getting to know about it, a problem about crediting ourselves with knowledge is one shape and not the most fundamental 
in which that anxiety can make it itself felt. Okay, so I have a few quotations here supporting the reading of, um, of um, McDowell as saying that there's this um, connection between self-containment and of the mind and skepticism. So this paper of um, Singular Thought and the Extent of Inner Space is one of the, um, one of the papers which introduces his disjunctivism. I'll say exactly what that is on the next slide. But he's saying the problem motivating it is with the idea of the self-contained subjective realm in which things are as they are independently of external reality. The problem with this denial of the interpenetration between inner and outer. And with a conception of a realm whose layout is independent of external reality. That's this Cartesian mind which he's trying to get away from. And so one way to reject this problematic idea is offered through disjunctivism. Um, so I'm taking this to be this, precisely this denial of the assumption of isolatability. So with McDowell's um, disjunctivism, as he puts it, um, when you have a veridical perceptual state, for example, seeing a purple balloon drift past your window, um, and it has an illusory or hallucinatory counterpart, which is subjectively indistinguishable to the subject. So there is a commonality of appearance. It's not the case that they have the same epistemic significance. So they look the same to you, but for theorizing perceptual epistemology, they're actually different states. That's his disjunctivism. Okay, so Burge um, paper from back in 2005, very long paper, came out with a big attack on disjunctivism. And as he puts it, it's disjunctivism's denial of an explanatorily relevant specific perceptual state kind in common between subjectively indistinguishable veridical and non-veridical perceptual states. And he says flat out that it's incompatible with findings of mature perceptual psychology. So I put an illusion on the slide here. I don't know if it works well enough in PowerPoint. Um, this is a case where I think Burge might classify it as a hallucination. Reason being that the reason why you see these um, splodges um, in the periphery, in the grid, if the illusion is working, is because of weird stuff going on in your retina, not because the distal um, stimulus that you're looking at is um, is has a um, in has a um, under under determination problem. So I just put this slide in to illustrate exactly the kinds of cases that are front of Burge's mind when he's um, complaining about disjunctivism, and they're also very central to his own um, theory of perception and the kind of science that he is talking about as mature and very important results in perceptual science. So what's going on in this slide, and I've taken it from a, a, um, a paper of, um, in vision science where they're doing Bayesian models, but the Bayesian thing is not relevant to the case. I'm just using this to illustrate the idea. The point is that the image on the retina has like 
um, is a 2D image just projected onto, onto the retina. But what you want to know about the external world is the 3D object, which is the distal cause of your um, retinal stimulation, which is, if you like, the source of the projection onto your retina. So what they're illustrating here is that, okay, so imagine that this is an image project, projected onto the retina. There's this all kinds of possible objects that you might think are out there in the, your environment that could be the distal cause of this retinal stimulation. Turns out there's, there's only three candidate objects which could be true to that geometric projection. So you sort of narrow down your range of options to these three candidate 3D objects. Um, so there's this underdetermination here. This one retinal image could have been caused by that weird object, that weird object, or that regular object. So the point about um, these models of the visual system is that they say that there's this biasing work that goes on based on, if you like, prior knowledge of what your environment is like, which tells you that most likely it's going to be that regular object, which is the distal cause. So that leads you to the visual system to basically perceive that regular 3D object as opposed to those weird ones, because it's just too unlikely that those <coughs> weird ones would be the distal cause of that particular image. So those are the, that's the kind of work that Burge is really interested in. So his proximality principle is the core move which, um, which sort of lays out why he says that um, disjunctivism is incompatible with perceptual science. So I won't read this all out, um, just summarize the point here. So the idea is that when, when you think about that whole sort of um, path of stimulation from the distal object through to the retinal image formation and then further processing in the visual system, sure, it can be the case that various different um, distal objects can cause the same um, retinal image. And that's the thing that really matters to the scientist, that you begin with that registration of the proximal stimulation, then there is psychological background um, states that also make a difference to further processing in the visual system, and there are these biasing principles that also make a further difference to the final percept that you will have. But given that all of those different distal objects all project, make that same projection onto the retina, the differences between those distal objects cannot make a difference to what your ultimate perceptual state is. So we need to think about the um, perceptual state that you're in when you're correctly perceiving the regular object and the illusory state that you're in when it's actually a weird, irregular object, but you think it's that regular object because of how your visual system has those biases and you are actually subject to an illusion. Those are, for the, point of this, for the purposes of the science and the 
fundamental explanatory status, those are the same state. The illusory state and the vertical state are the same state. Um, disjunctivism, he says, makes the mistake of treating these as different states. Um, when you do the science, they can't be treated as different states. Okay. Just slide illustrating here that a key thing for Burge is this moment of transduction, which he calls this registration of proximal stimulation. So there's a digital object out there. There's this one retinal image. There's and everything that then goes off in the visual system um, along from there. So there's this like boundary, this separation at the moment of transduction between distal causes and proximal causes. And for the purpose of state typing these perceptual states, it's only the proximal causes that matter. Okay. So one kind of response to Burgess' picture that you could sort of derive from Hoagland, but McDowell doesn't take this up, um, is actually to criticise this notion of the transduction boundary. So it's one of the things that comes up in mind embodied and embedded is that we shouldn't think of transduction as a sharp boundary between the perceived environment and the mind-brain, or the mind-brain issuing motor commands and the body that performs them. He's saying if you're truly into embodied cognition, you won't think about the world in that way. But McDowell doesn't go in for a direct attack on Burgess' account of the science. Instead, he wants just to think of there being a separation of explanatory goals. So McDowell's response is just to say he has an epistemological project, and that's just different from Burgess' one. What McDowell wants to explain, he says, is how perceptual states of an individual permit that individual to have indefeasible knowledge, in the good cases, the vertical ones, of the world around them. And he just thinks that the proximality principle is not applicable to his project. Um, so just to quote from McDowell's paper, which is one of the responses to Burge, he writes, the science of perception explains perceptual states only as upshots of differential responsivenesses. It does not explain them as what they also are, which are acts of capacities for knowledge, classifying them in that further way is additional to what the science does, not inconsistent with it. So there's this, the, what he wants to say to Burge is that we're just doing things, there's no incompatibility, there's no inconsistency, there's no big tension, there's just people doing different things. Burge, by the way, is not happy with that for reasons I could go into in the Q&A, but perhaps. But what I want to sort of add further here is that there is available to McDowell a stronger response, which is to say that Burge's picture of this, in which the proximality principle is resting on, is related to this idealization of isolatable systems. And idealizations are deliberate distortions that scientists rely on largely for pragmatic reasons. Um, and if this case is correct, then the notion of mind-brain as an isolatable system 
that it's an idealization and that the proximality principle in perceptual science is a manifestation of it, then this gives stronger grounds for philosophy to chart a path independently of the science. So the point basically is that the philosophical position is not refuted because it's inconsistent with a thesis that is a working assumption of the empirical science, but not a discovery. So Burge presents the, the proximality principle as simply what scientists have discovered about nature doesn't take into account that it could be something that they need to assume in order to get workable models of perception. And so if the science is driven by these different, if you like, practical goals, they need precise workable models, give predictive accuracy, ideas that be, can be coded into machine vision systems, a whole bunch of different goals which philosophers have not traditionally had, but though some philosophers might want to pitch themselves more to different goals, that's a matter of choice. But if a philosopher says, well, my project's epistemology, I've got a different set of goals from the scientists, then that's reason to chart a different path and not be bothered about um, incompatibility. Okay. One thing I did want to say more about at the end is there's a very obvious question in the background here. What about Burge's externalism? Because an interesting thing about Burge's theory of perception is that he's also reacting against this Cartesian internalist account of the contents of me mental states. So he's had a long-standing view known as anti-individualism, um, which, as he puts it, says that the nature and correct individuation of perceptual states and perceptual beliefs are constitutively associated with relations, including causal relations, between capacities in the perceptual system and aspects of the physical environment. So it would seem that Burge isn't going in for this sort of very internalist, Cartesian, separated mind picture. Um, so this isn't the space to give a thorough evaluation tool of Burge's view. All I can say is why McDowell would not be satisfied with the Burge level response to the Cartesian predicament. Uh, oh yeah, just to mention also Burge thinks of disjunctivism as just a bad version of what externalism is getting at. So they, yeah. Okay, so just to say a bit more about Burge's um, externalism very quickly, um, I think the core intuition here is that you wouldn't get the perceptual system that you have unless certain regularities hold between um, the external world and events going on in your perceptual system. So it has to be generally the case that regular solids appear in your environment and not weird, irregular things, and therefore you get these, the content of your perceptual states having the nature that they do. Um, but in particular instances, you can be fooled by the odd, irregular thing that turns up. Okay, so he talks about how his anti-individualism 
is not saying that mental states are relations, they're not, and not denying that they're in the head. Um, and what I take this to mean is that he's rejecting the kind of view that wants more integralness, more commingling, to use those metaphors, um, than he's allowed to give it. So I see him as sort of move, moving to some extent away from the self-containment of the mind, but not as far as McDowell or Hoagland would want to go. Hence, the lack of satisfaction on McDowell's part. Another thing which is different between them is that Burge um, does not make factive states, i.e. the veridical <coughs> perceiving as having any centrality to his theory of perception. Um, but this is important for McDowell that the good cases are the central cases. So there's that tension there as well. And ultimately, Burgess' picture sort of just allows for that underdetermination scenario, which is at the root of the brain and the fact skepticism, where, you know, this thing, what's going on inside your brain, stays the same and everything else changes, right? He's basically with the proximality principle. He's just saying, yes, as a matter of fact, that can happen. And he does also mention that anti-individualism by itself doesn't have any sort of general solution to um, Cartesian skepticism, though he thinks it has important resources to help out there. So, in conclusion, um, McDowell's disjunctivism should be interpreted as a response to Cartesian scepticism. This undetermination scenario of scepticism needs to treat mind as self-contained and abounded from the world. Burge's proximality principle accepts self-containment and the possibility of that scenario. And I've diagnosed this because these express basic presuppositions of causal explanation and the scientific need to posit self-standing entities. So at the end of the day, this tension between disjunctivism and science has been diagnosed, but not resolved. Thank you. Thanks very much. So I think we'll have sort of